you cannot win the education argument on its own politically. It's got to be part of a broader mix. Right. And uh, there's very interesting insights you can get from um, looking at those societies which are more equal compared to those which are more unequal. And in those societies which are more equal, like Denmark and Norway, there is a huge valuation for education, but all sorts of education. It's not just academic learning, vocational learning is respected in Norway and, and Denmark. And so if we're keen to elevate the status of education, it's got to be part of a broader strategy of uh, equality. Uh, education on its own can't do it, but equally a strategy of equality without a strong education agenda wouldn't really be worth pursuing. Hello, I'm Steve Davis and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. In July 2021, the 30th annual No Frills Conference was held, but for the second year running, it was delivered as a virtual online event due to COVID-19 restrictions. Along with a series of standalone presentations, three live Q&A sessions were held, and in this episode, we'll share a sampling of these three events. The VET landscape has changed a lot over the past 30 years. More recently, COVID-19 has radically affected not just our conference, but how we learn, work and live. While many have felt the negative impacts, we've also become more flexible and connected as we've adjusted to new modes of learning and working. Hence, the conference theme was Past Informing the Future and it prompted presenters to consider how VET's past might inform its future and to reflect on the lessons and achievements that have the potential to inform progress. So let's begin. And let's start with a snippet from the first of the three Q&A sessions, which featured Megan Lilly from the Australian Industry Group and John Buchanan, University of Sydney, whom we heard at the beginning of this episode. Let's hear a little more of what John had to say before we turn to some of the questions and answers. This is an excerpt from his presentation, The Futures of Work, What Education Can and Can't Do, in which he addresses the key labour market problem that needs to be overcome. We think if we're thinking about um, that question, what's the key labour market problem that needs to be overcome, it's a shortage of jobs. We've got high levels of unemployment and underemployment. We've had these, the kind of mantra um, rammed down our throats by the financial sector for the last, and, and uh, the political class for the last 20 years that we've had, what is it, 20 or 30 years of uninterrupted growth, the envy of the Western world. Well, if you look at Australia's unemployment rate and its underemployment rate over the last three decades, you'll notice that around 12 to 15% of the population has been uh, either unemployed or underemployed, looking for more hours of work. So it's time to devote more attention to the problem of job scarcity and not wrap it on about skill shortages. Let's also hear a sampling now from Megan Lilly's presentation. It was entitled, Can We Deliver Future-Focused Education and Training with and in Industry? In this excerpt, she flags the urgent issue of skills gaps. Skill shortages had been emerging as an issue, and it's a very, very significant issue now. Um, but skill gaps, you know, isn't just not being able to get the right person, you actually might have a, um, the right number of people in your company, but you might not have the right skill combination. So, you know, how do we actually upskill, reskill, fill those gaps and, you know, develop solutions and strategies around that? So that, that I actually think is going to be an enduring issue that we need to 
pretty much tackled quite urgently, um, and frankly, over the next decade. And now to some of the Q&A session. One quick apology in this time of COVID. Please ignore my voice. It's a bit croaky at the moment, uh, but we'll get through with a little bit of lem sip. Megan Lilly. I'd like to put my first question to you because your presentation was based on the skills urgency report in which the AI group surveyed Australian CEOs late in 2020. And in particular, I want to drill down into the slide about strategies for increasing employees' skill levels. Why do you think 75% of the CEOs are happy to forge ahead with training and reskilling existing employees with or without government support? but only 40% of them are happy to do that when it comes to employing TAFE or university graduates. Do you think that's because existing employees already have a, a proven cultural fit and the CEOs see value in that? In a way, I think you've already pointed to the answer of that question, is that um, I, I think people are very conscious that the, people, the workers they've got are, the, are part of the workforce they'll have going into the future. And so the most sensible thing to do is to keep developing that workforce, building the capability of that workforce in multiple ways. Uh, and, and I think that the imperative around that is nothing, it just continues to increase. Um, and most employers that I talk to, you know, openly talk about if you, you know, if you don't invest in the people you've got, um, their skills will become redundant or out of date, that you need this continuous skilling, upskilling type thing. Now, bear in mind that we're in extreme skill shortages at the moment. So there is a great premium on bringing young people or great recent graduates into the workplace. I think this survey results points to that there's more effort required there mm -hmm. to help them on that transition. Megan, I just want to pick up on that. You mentioned that with just one other follow-up question uh, that leads into this skill shortage issue. Uh, Amid all the talk about soft skills, uh, in your report, you note that positive attitude mm -hmm. is one of the most important entry-level recruiting factors. And, and that seems to be self-evident these days. I mean, Sir Richard Branson has made it popular, the concept of employing for attitude first and then teaching skills later. But from a neurodiversity perspective, not everybody has an innate ability to present themselves as warm and, and sociable in a conventional manner, which means with that criteria, we could be excluding a portion of the potential workforce at a time of this scarcity. Do you think that term positive attitude uh, needs some extra definition? Well, I think if you're talking about soft skills, I think you need extra definition all the way through it, including the definition around soft skills, I might say. It's a contested term in and of itself. Um, it, and it's frankly just a label. Um, and in a way, bearing in mind surveys, you've got very limited capacity with words. So I do accept that, um, you know, neurodiversity is an issue at recruitment. But I don't actually accept the premise that if you are neurodiverse, you don't or not able to exhibit positivity. And positivity can play out in many different ways. And it isn't just the um, engaging interpersonal thing. It can be a much deeper um, engagement around issues and topics and interests. So I, I, I challenge back the definition around how neurodiversity presents itself. And I look around every workplace I've ever worked in, and I think there's been many neurodiverse people that may or may not have been identified because, you know, I'm a bit old and there's, you know, there's a lot of people there. Um, and many of them are very positive. So I think it's much more than that. But I do agree that we need diverse, open and inclusive recruitment practices. 
Thank you, Megan. Uh, John, in your report, you argue that our society, especially in the vet sector, uh, looks at education as an instrument in relation to employment and the economy, rather than hold up the educated population as the hallmark of a civilised society. Now, to help us grasp that vision, is it possible to point to a golden age when we did have educated masses or, or a society that, that is or has gotten that right? First of all, there hasn't been a golden age. You know, it's not like I'm harking back to somewhere that's um, perfect and we've got to get back to. I think the best way of answering is that some societies at certain points of time have done better than most of their peers. And probably the best example I can think of here is Scotland in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, at, at that time, Scottish boys and girls were the most literate children in Europe as a result of um, the theology of that time, which was basically saying people had to have a direct relationship with God, which they could only get if they could read the Bible. And so the literacy rates were through the roof. And as a kind of little footnote to that story, that's one of the reasons attributed for why the Scottish had an enlightenment way superior to most other places in, in Europe at the time, because with the onset of free trade with England in the early 19th century, you had a fusion of economic liberalisation combined with a highly intelligent population or highly literate population, which meant there was a big domain of ideas. And this is what generated the Adam Smiths and the David Humes and the like. Mm. So um, the second example I can cite is Korea today. Korea has very high levels of educational attainment. But once again, um, that's because it's got such a weak welfare state. Parents put a huge amount of investment in education because they're trying to help their children get forward. And so both of those examples show that uh, the educated society is a function of other factors in society. So education on its own can't function. It's you've got to look at a broader cultural context or a broader economic context. Stay on board because yep. Helena has a question for you. Yep. I think this goes into one of your happy spaces. Uh, <laughs> given all the limitations of micro-credentialing, yeah. Are there any advantages to them? Look, don't get me wrong. I, I'm um, I'm not a hundred percent opposed to micro credentials. It's the it's the settings within which they are developed. And uh, what worries me, if you look at work that comes out of the World Economic Forum, if you look at uh, some of the looser language from the Business Council of Australia, for example, there is a uh, I don't know if it's a deliberate or unintentional passing over of thinking about domains of expertise. There is an interest in meeting the immediate. There's an interest in meeting short run uh, problems. Everyone wants to solve problems in the short run, but it's highly possible to solve an immediate problem and create a deeper problem further down the line. So my deep expertise, I did my PhD around um, the metal and engineering trades and the transformation of them in the 80s and 90s. And it was really interesting looking at the data on that. The, the ABS used to have a very useful survey, which was um, where do tradespeople end up? What are the career paths of tradespeople? And metal and engineering trades headed the pack of people who were not working in their trade, but were using the deep um, analytical and um, collaborative skills they'd learned as highly skilled metal workers in other domains. And that, that's my point. You, you, when I'm talking about getting a domain of expertise, I'm not saying you've got to be trapped in that for life. But if you don't have a domain of expertise, then you just end up with an incoherent blamange. And that's my concern with micro-credentials. Can I just add a quick comment? Yes. 
Um, so we had a webinar on micro credentials this morning, mm. uh, and and I I think they've got a great place, and and they you know and there's a whole lot of co-design issues and all that sort of stuff. But I don't think we should have a conversation about micro credentials without actually talking about macro credentials, if I can use that phrase for a moment. Mm. And um and I do think we need to understand that qualifications, when they're well designed, have a really strong organising principle and, and develop a very important foundation for someone on their journey in life. And micro-credentials to me then add to that. They don't replace it. Do you have any comments about the importance of workforce planning and VET in attracting workers to jobs? Yeah, I've done a lot of work on workforce planning and I think the the, the big thing that's paralyzing the, the uh, way we do this in Australia is that there's very there's a deep linear a deep attachment to linear thinking and gap analysis where um, we say this is what we expect the projected demand to be this is um, what we've got on the supply side what's the gap how do we fill it the, you know the history of workforce planning is the history of the failure of that way of thinking let's be quite clear. I mean, it's just essentially, you can do it okay in the short run. You know, you might be able to predict stuff out for six months, 12 months or so. I think uh, if we're interested in taking these ideas forward in the workforce planning space, I think it's better to think about planning for workforce development. It's about building up the institutions that give you the capacity to adapt. So you've got to think about, you've got to take a step back. What are the underlying capabilities that you've got to develop a stock of as you move into the future? And so for me, the planning question is, what are those underlying capabilities? And that's why people like Lisa Wilhelm and myself have looked at this idea of vocational streams. Now, the problem isn't just about aged care or about disability support. There's a broader care health domain. How do we think about the underlying capabilities you develop there? So for me, the, the workforce planning piece is actually thinking differently about how you build planning for workforce development, not this gap analysis. Let's turn now to day two of No Frills 2021. Now, there's a lot of vocational education and training reform going on in the National Recognised Vet System. I'm very aware of most of this. I have yet to read and digest it all in detail. We know that skill sets I prefer that term in veg, skill sets, and then we know that within that there's capital S skill sets, those that are identified in training packages, and then there's small S skill sets, as we call, have come to call them, which are combinations of units of competency which uh, individuals put together and decide to do. Uh, both the small S and the capital S skill sets, of course, lead to a statement of attainment a clear certification that we've had in the VET system for some some time, which is nationally recognised because they're doing parts of, if not a full, nationally recognised qualification. That was Kay Bowman from the Callan Consulting Group from her presentation on day two entitled Understanding Employers' Training Choices, Implications for the Accredited VET System. Her fellow presenter in the Q&A session was Michael Hartman from Skills Impact, whose presentation was The Ties That Bind, A Vision for Skilling Australia. Before we hear from Michael in the Q&A, let's hear a little more of Kay's presentation, in which she addresses the increasing use of nationally recognised VET by employers. If we want nationally recognised VET, 
to be uh, used by employers, then we need to be clear about how it relates to their specific needs. And we need to provide them carefully individualised training information. They do not want to hear about the complexities of the terminology inside VET or any of those sorts of things. And they generally are not very agreeable to having a RTO come along and try to sell them a product, even if it's nationally recognised training. They would prefer for the promotions to be responsive to their needs. And they're looking first to see whether that provider understands their needs. And now let's turn to some of the Q&A discussions. Kay Bowman, I'd like to put my first question to you to get us underway. Uh, your presentation was based on uh, understanding employers' training choices and the implications for the accredited VET system. In it, you reported on the different ways employers have been using training, but then you finished with what I dub a cliffhanger. Your suggestion was that leading-edge, non-recognised training might need to be brought into the nationally recognised VET system. Now, I imagine there'll be some mixed reactions to this recommendation, but would it be fair to describe this suggestion as the embracing of the position, if you can't beat them, join them? Right. Thank you very much for that question. Um, I'm hoping it's we, it's not seen as competition here. I mean, this has been the problem. We're, we're actually skilling uh, workforces. And as you know, we brought in a competitive market system. Uh, but the idea of non-accredited somehow being brought into the accredited vet system is not necessarily my recommendation at this stage, but it's certainly what I interpret the uh, Australian Qualifications Framework Review suggesting when it talks about micro-credentials and gives them a very broad definition that potentially would bring them into the system. But if you talk to employers, they see both as complementary, not as competing, as complementary. And if you think about enterprise registered training organisations, so employers that are also an RTO, they somehow managed to combine accredited training with the non-accredited in very good ways. So it's worth a look. And we know that we have examples of Microsoft uh, combining with TAFE to get the best of both worlds in TAFE training with placements in Microsoft. So I think there's room to think about it, but there are cautions we'd need to have. Michael Hartman. You mentioned in your presentation that units of competency have turned into a Swiss army knife for VET, making the point that units are skill standards and not training standards, and there are problems when we use them for regulation. However, as you unpack that Swiss army knife analogy, you made the point that with these devices, they have a number of tools cobbled together but none of them are as good as the standalone tools they're replacing. So I'd like to hold that thought and compare it to your suggestion that our 152 units, courses and modules that all have the word communicate in their title can be reduced to just a few if RTOs were given contextualization statements when they're teaching communication in specific contexts, such as hair salons or construction sites. But how is this not a Swiss army knife approach? Good question, Steve. Um, 
I was, I was referring to units of competency being, um, and you know, that analogy was borrowed from um, someone else. They're trying to do too many things and they're not doing any of those things very well. They started off as being occupational standards, as I talked about in the presentation, and then they ended up with a whole range of things being shoehorned into them. What I'm proposing is that we rewrite them so they are so they are pure occupational standards. If you like, they become the knife, the standalone knife, and they're supported by a range of standalone tools like you know screwdrivers, hammers, or whatever. And contextualization statements at the moment are buried within a unit of competency and they describe how that unit, the application of that unit of competency in the context. And because they're, they're stuck within that unit, it means when it comes to communicate in the workplace, there are more than a hundred versions of that because it's communicate in a boating situation, communicate in a hospital, communicate in a construction uh, site. So the proposal would be each of those contextualization statements rather than being shoehorned into a unit and then capturing that whole unit is that there would be a few few units and there would be multiple contextualization statements that are the screwdrivers if you like each individual screwdriver able to do the job properly so if a TAFE is going onto a building site they would pull down the contextualization statement and deliver a national unit that is transferable across all industries but in the context of this statement and that statement could be a page and a half long rather than a few lines jammed within a unit of competency. I relate to the Swiss Army knife effect. My question is, how can we at TAFE meet industry needs better with our current restrictions? With the current restrictions? Mm. Well, I, th I think that is a question really for um, what Kay was talking about is through partnership with um, industry. And what I find is, is frustrating about the current system is the regulator use units of competency to regulate as though they're training standards and they, are, they describe work. And that's why industry gets to write them because they describe work. If we had genuine training standards, they wouldn't be written by industry. They'd be written by training professionals that currently most of them are employed by RTOs, including TAFE. So as a, as a um, skills service organisation under the current system, we have industry reference committees. We would also like to have a role that we had RTO or learn or trainer reference committees that would help us develop curriculum that the RTO say, yes, this describes what we have to do to manage a student journey so that they become competent because industry doesn't, is not, are not training professionals in the main. You're calling for a fresh reform of training so that we have industry work skills standards and national skills and training materials to help inform people as to what's required so that evidence of competency is relevant to workplace practice. Now, if the bold attempts of reform floundered in 2001 and left us with the term training package, which was not actually a training package, what would make your currently suggested reforms more likely to succeed? Um, well, at the moment, we are in a, a reform environment. And okay. if you go into the uh, Department of um, Education, Skills and Employment website and um, click on Skills and Training, click on Reform, there are the proposals there right now for qualifications reform. So the ministers, state and federal ministers, have agreed that we need to reform the way qualifications actually operate in Australia. So we've got an environment now and we've got an opportunity.
And in that opportunity, the website also states that one of the ambitions of this reform, a priority, is to streamline and simplify and reduce duplication. And I've worked with industry and I've experienced their resistance to duplication because they say someone communicating in a hospital and deemed competent cannot communicate on a building site. So we want our own unit. And um, so it'll run up, head up, it'll um, run into uh, resistance from industry, but that resistance can be completely removed if we create a new tool and that's contextualization statements owned by industry where industry says, says yes, you can train that unit and when it comes to our industry, providing you're following these guidelines in your curriculum, we're completely fine with it. So we will be able to reduce those 152 units down to 15 or so, providing industry gets their slice of the action, which is a contextualization statement so that they can see their industry in that generic communication unit. The question is, how is industry responding to your proposition? Because the model could make industry reps redundant. That's a misunderstanding. Um, I think we still need industry setting the end result of, of what a training program should deliver, and that's a competent worker. But the big missing the big missing part of the current vet sector is that we don't have documented what is the student journey to get someone to make them or so that the end result of them is that they're competent. And that's the domain of learning professionals. So when we, when we write an industry outcome that says this is what a, a person working well will look like, every RTO who wants to deliver that unit or that qualification across Australia gets to decide their own view of what is the appropriate student journey for that person to undertake. And of course, they all come up with different examples. And at the lean end of the end is someone saying, oh, we can teach that unit or that skill set in four hours. And then we come up with very diligent training organisations say, this is ridiculous. It takes three days to deliver this properly. And so then there's been a call, we need minimum training hours documented. And um, I don't think it's about how many hours is spent. It's about reaching national consensus with training and learning professionals about what a student journey looks like to make someone competent because that is the domain of learning and development professionals, which are not the people we talk to when we write occupational standards. We write them based on job experts and their understanding of what a job performed properly looks like. So what I'm actually proposing is uh, an existing role for industry, but a new role for training providers in coming up with national statements that say, this is what a training provider should do and the regulator to regulate against those training standards, not against occupational standards. Because one of the realities in the real world is a training provider, there are some things that can be trained and there are some things that can only be learnt, learnt in the workplace. And when a training provider has been asked to deliver an outcome of something that can only be done in a real life working environment that results in some very significant challenges. Finally, it's time for some highlights from day three of No Frills 2021. An open knowledge-based curriculum paradigm cannot exist as a subset of the national skill system, however configured. Rather, that skill system, which might continue in part to follow the principles of CBT, would be just one component of a broader further education sector within which it would coexist 
with a range of other educational purposes and curriculum approaches consistent with the broad objectives and standards set out in the Australian Qualifications Framework. That was Martha Kinsman from the Australian National University from her presentation entitled 30 Years On, Reimagining Competence in a Post-COVID World. Her co-presenter on that day was Stephen Billett from Griffith University, who delivered a presentation entitled VET and Work-Life Learning Pathways. Let's hear a little of Michael's presentation now before turning to the Q&A segments. So personal curriculums then are essentially pathways of experiences individuals have across their lives, including, and perhaps centrally, their working lives. These are shaped by the educative experiences I've mentioned in schools, workplaces and community, and how individuals elect to engage with these experiences and learn from them. It's important to always remember that educational experiences are nothing other than, nothing more or less than an opportunity, an invitation to change. And it's how people take up that invitation, which is central to the learning outcomes. And now let's listen into some of the Q&A session. Martha Kinsman, firstly to you. Uh, In your presentation, you argue that the competency-based training system is no longer fit for purpose as the sole and universal curriculum model for Australian VET for for a host of reasons. In your discussion, uh, you highlight the paucity of the system for learners due to the fact that they're restricted to low-level knowledge, such as what and how, rather than higher-level knowledge, like why and what if. And you shared Gamble's unpacking of these types of knowledge. And it made me wonder if industry will resist your calls for change. And this is because these procedural competencies, the what and the how, lead to certain outcomes. How to cut hair a certain way. That's repeatable. Whereas principled competencies, the why and what if, they mean learners are equipped to reach new or unknown outcomes. Are all industries ready for such unleashing of thought and creativity? Well, first of all, um, Steve, thank you very much for understanding what I was trying to say so very well. Um, I guess the critical question is not whether all industries are ready for or indeed have unleashed such creativity, because they clearly have. I can't think of any industry that has not unleashed um, and encouraged thought and creativity. Possibly some very small uh, religious fundamental sects um, don't like it, but most industries have encouraged it. They've encouraged it in higher education and in universities. So the critical question is, are they all ready for this to um, occur uh, in VET? And I think the answer to that is no. They're not. Um, There's a level of resistance because competency-based training has worked very well in terms of regarding individuals as a uh, a factor input to production and the idea of compliance of the minimum necessary, the minimum cost necessary, um, what one person has called speed to market, um, all of those sorts of values are dominant. If the question, however, was, are all occupations or occupational streams ready for uh, a greater unleashing, as it's your word, um, a a greater scope for more complex, I'd rather complex and higher level, more complex thinking and conceptual development, 
then I can't think of an occupational stream that would not welcome that. And I can't think of some individuals in each occupational stream in VET who would not welcome being given access to it. Other individuals may not want it. So the whole purpose of what I'm arguing is horses for courses. Stephen, your concept of viewing our working lives as personal curriculums, I find very novel. Uh, in my case, though, if you look at the bizarre combination of things I've done, you know, my curriculum director would be held with great suspicion by their peers. Uh, but that said, I can see my personal curriculum making sense in retrospect, or to put it another way in your terminology, my experienced curriculum uh, can teach me things through reflection. However, some of the fundamentally transformative milestones I've achieved in my journey, they've come about by accident or even by malicious actions on the parts of others. And given it's unlikely anyone would deliberately plan to have tragedies for the sake of enriching a personal curriculum, is this model largely one that looks back rather than looks forward? No, and it, it's, I mean, you would be a, a good um, informant for our project. But by the way, so would most of the people listening into this, in this program, because what we're finding is all of these things across people's life history. We're talking about in some sense, refugee migrants who were forced at gunpoint to leave their countries. You know, and that they didn't want that to happen. They had to happen. So one thing that's come through is this thing called happen chance. I mean, when I, when I came to Australia in 1976, I hitchhiked up from Sydney to, to Brisbane, didn't know anybody in Brisbane and began looking for work. I used to do work in cooking work when I was traveling, but my skills were in clothing design. And I was walking through Fortitude Valley. There was a phone booth. Remember phone booths? And I went inside one and it had a phone book. Remember phone books? And I looked down clothing manufacturing. It said Friedman Co. And I realized I'd just seen that name. And the phone booth was outside a clothing company called Friedman Co. I went inside and said, do you have a need for a designer? And they said, we've just been advertising in Europe for one because we can't get one here. So even if I'd gone to CES, the Commonwealth Employment Service, um, they wouldn't have been a vacancy because they had been not bothered with that. So here's a happen chance, and that then led to permanent work, me staying in Brisbane, and you know, lots of changes, including eventually becoming a TAFE teacher in clothing that came from that, that moment. So, yes, I mean, a happen chance, is, I think, is important. And lots of the um, things we encounter are not really intentional. You know, we, we, we muddle our way through, a bit like parenthood. You know, we sort of muddle our way through these things. But what we're trying to do here is really describe and explain the learning trajectory of adults across changing working lives. And the concepts of curriculum we're dealing with tend to only relate to when there's educational programs being offered. And even the concept of the experience curriculum, it only relates to the experiences of the educational program. But of course, in adulthood, perhaps unlike childhood, the vast majority of the time isn't of learning, isn't actually associated with engagement in particular educational programs. So we want to know how people made these transitions and then perhaps rethink the ways in which support can be provided. So going back, I mean, Otfi, for instance, about well, probably 10 years, might be longer than that now. Otfi is the agency in, in, in Victoria, which looks at... Um, uh, further education, they found that over 92% of Australians only engaged in one or two modules within courses. 
yet the entire structure is based around programs. And 92% of people participating in vocational education, according to that data, only engaged in one or two modules. Yet we have a structure based around courses. And yet the adult population, working age population in Australia is saying something different. So we might, for instance, think about changing the AQF rather than a a hierarchical arrangement, knock it down, have it horizontal and see how people progress across there. So what we're trying to do is, I mean, because... I think it's important because so much of the data that's gathered, for instance, when we had this organization called Skills Australia, their remit was only to look at the learning that occurred within um, AQF recognized programs. All of the learning that that you've had, uh, Stephen, across your work life and people listening would sit outside of that. So what we're trying to do is capture that. And a way of explaining it, I think, is this concept of, the personal curriculum, our own personal yellow brick roads. And just like Dorothy, you know, we have, we meet interesting characters along the way, but unfortunately, Emerald City, Emerald City changes and it's, maybe we don't get there. Maybe we do for some. I've got a couple more steps along that yellow brick road with you right now before we turn to the other questions, because you mentioned that if VET providers took this model of personal curriculum into account during training, it would lead to a much more customised experience and, in effect, apply a degree of RPL into the mix. And this customisation, though, would spell the end of any notion of one-size-fits-all models of vet delivery and quite likely lead to extra costs. Now, if that's the case, and if so, do you think potentially more valuable outcomes for learners and industry would justify that cost? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not quite sure if I, I put it quite like that, but I'm, I'm quite happy to take and engage in that argument. I mean, it's we need the courses, don't get me wrong. They're the platforms that we work on, but a lot of it's how people come to engage with them and, and the kind of experiences that are provided and the degrees by which they're relevant to, um, uh, to working age Australians. And whether, for instance, the AQF offers the, the most appropriate framework for that to happen in, you know, the compulsory elements of AQF registered courses. So in Singapore, for instance, they have, one level of diplomas for school leavers, but adults into engaging in a different set of diplomas do a far shorter program. There are sensible arrangements like that, which are in some sense inhibited by the AQF. So it's really about opening up things. It's really about making things um, um, accessible in different ways. The Dutch system, for instance, is far more horizontal than hierarchical, and there's lots of movements across, and you can progress across different levels of, of tertiary education from um, early level vocational education, early le- levels of vocational education through to the, the, the academic uh, programs within the academic universities. They have applied and academic universities. They have pathways that are sort of very horizontal, you can move across, whereas uh, hierarchical. So it's some of these structures which allow movement and mobility, but also, as you're saying, recognition of prior learning is important. However, we often find that the recognition of prior learning is problematic because there's very rarely a good fit between people's experience and the requirements of courses. It's it's never quite a knit like that. But there has to, but there can be you know an openness um, to how some of these arrangements can be undertaken. And I think one of the, the ways in which we can achieve that is having more locally based decision making. So less top down, more decisions made at a local level um, mm-hmm. to support it. 
Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments, with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.